If you're around me very long, you know that I have little patience for cliches, especially Christian cliches. Um, I have to do my very best to hide facial expressions or inner emotions when Christian cliches are just kind of thrown around the room. And I'm not going to name some of them because some of them, I don't know, might be your favorites. I don't, I don't know. I've got one or two that I have every once in a while. But not all cliches are bad. There's often an element of truth contained in them. Consider this one. Christianity isn't a religion. Can you fill the rest of it in? It's a what? Relationship, right? That's a cliche. It's a Christian cliche. It's true, but it tends to take on a life of its own that kind of dismisses the central truths of Christianity. It is true as far as it goes. Christianity isn't a religion. It's a relationship, and obviously it all depends on how you define some of those words. But one of the things that concerns me with that is that it disguises a cheap grace version of the Christian faith. Grace without obedience, if you please. This emphasis on a relationship with Jesus Christ, full stop. Well, it's from the relationship with Jesus Christ that we walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. See, there's a great difference between those two things, and that's the danger of a cliché is that we differentiate it from a system of man that invites us to works righteousness. Instead, we pivot and say it's about a relationship and a relationship with Jesus, indeed. But sometimes we talk so cavalierly about a relationship with Jesus that we fail to understand what Jesus' demands are of those whom have come to him in a saving knowledge. It's really one that follows the other as you hear so regularly from this pulpit. And yet, as we close Trinity Sunday last week, God the Father in love is working out all things for our good, even this moment. God the Son in love is interceding for us also in this very moment. God the Holy Spirit in also in love is dwelling within each and every one of us to teach us all things. So yes, it's not a man-made religion, it is a relationship with the triune God who makes demands of us. So there is something I admit to be said about the nature of Christianity being about relationships. And in fact, if you have listened carefully, and I know that many of you have over the months, in our studies of Romans, I've pointed out to you how Paul often frames his teaching points in relationships. And so what I want to do this morning, under two separate heads, is just do a whirlwind tour of where we've been. Romans 1 to 13, and then as a lead up to the table, I want to look very briefly at that paragraph, or at least pieces of the paragraph that Pastor, or that Brother Paul uh, just read for us in Romans 14, 1 to 9, as a way of showing you this is where we will be, God willing, in the fall, and we take up this passage in Romans 14 and 15. So let's, let's say, let's declare the first head to be review, and then the second head will be a preview of things to come, okay? Uh, I like coming back and, and walking through Romans so that we reset the big picture. We've been so far into the weeds and some of the uh, intricate passages along the way, it's good to come up for air every once in a while and say, oh yeah, that's how that fits in there. So what I want to do under the review section is walk you ever so quickly through seven life-defining relationships. 
And then we'll just have the one life-defining relationships under the preview going forward. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. So most of the time he preaches a couple of points, three points every once in a while, and that takes him an hour and 45 minutes to three hours, and now he's got seven points, and I've got to really wonder whether or not I'm going to be here long enough. Trust me, I'm going to take you right through this. Here's the first one. The first relationship is our relationship to the gospel. That's in Romans chapter 1. The theme verse of the book is in Romans 1, 16 and 17. It sounds like this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is Paul talking. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. And in verse 17 of Romans 1, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, quoting Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. So we have a relationship. If you're a Christian, you have a relationship to the gospel. You have no gospel, you have no power. You have no gospel, you have no salvation. You have no gospel, you have no Jesus. It's that simple. And that's really what Paul's saying for us right here, right out of the, right out of the shoot in Romans chapter 1. And we have to ask ourselves, why is this so? This is the second relationship. Further down in Romans chapter 1, this is Romans 1 to 3 and 6, and there's overlap here. Secondly, this is our relationship to sin. Yes, we have a relationship to sin. We need to talk about this a little bit. A little bit later in chapter 1, Romans 1.18, the text tells us, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Apart from Christ, we are ungodly. Apart from Christ, we are unrighteous. And the wrath of God, Paul's going to tell us in Ephesians, already rests upon us. In chapter 3, he brings us to a head and he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if you're sitting here in this room as a Christian, you have a relationship to sin, but it's different than the relationship with those who are apart from Christ. So if you're in this room, you have not yet become a believer. If you're in streamland and you are hearing this for the first time or maybe more than one time and you're apart from Christ, you're in dire straits. You have a relationship with sin that controls you. For the believer, the relationship to sin exists in the battle that we continue to fight against the remaining indwelling sin in our life because God has taken in Christ our sin and removed it from us as far as the east is from the west. We need the gospel because we've got a sin problem. You and I need the gospel because of our sin that separates us from God, that causes us to fall short of the glory of God. The legitimate question to ask is, how then is this applied? How do I get this? This is the third relationship in what Romans 3 to 5 outlines for us, namely our relationship to faith. It's a wonderful exercise for us to go through, and it's wonderful to connect all of these dots through Romans 1 to 13. If you take a, even a, a concise set of notes, you'll have a nice walkthrough to share with your unbelieving family member, your unbelieving neighbor or coworker, just in terms of what the gospel is, why the gospel is necessary, and how you can move out of a relationship, a controlling relationship with sin, to a relationship that con that's controlled more by faith. So in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21, Paul says this, but now... You know how much I love those little words, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You might want to mark that because we'll come back to that when we do the Ten Commandments. 
righteousness from God manifested apart from the law, but the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And then in chapter 4, he takes the whole chapter focusing on Abraham, showing us what it looks like to walk by faith. The law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we who are in Christ have a relationship to faith. And this is what it sounds like and why we are capable of living in such a way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.24 now, and are justified in good standing, how? By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, how? Verse 25, Romans 3, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. See, that's the sin problem being taken care of. You are a sinner. Prior to coming to Christ, you remain a justified sinner, but prior to coming to Christ, you are dead in your sins and in your trespasses. The wrath of God rests upon you. So something has to be done about that. That's what propitiation means. Propitiation means to absorb wrath by the blood, by the cross of Christ. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Yes, it is in a sense that the Father turned his back, but it was the wrath of God that Jesus absorbed that you and I justly deserve. whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You come to Christ and say, yes, I believe that you and your work is the only hope that I have. Nothing that I bring, says the song, simply to the cross I cling. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. By faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God becomes ours. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, became sin so that we who only knew sin might become the righteousness of God. If you memorize one verse this week, let it be 2 Corinthians 5.21. You can't do much better than that. By faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God becomes ours justifying us, putting us in right relationship with God. Don't take my word for it. Here's how Paul says it in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified, how? By faith. In what? The shed blood of Jesus Christ. Since we've been justified by faith, here's the good news. Preach it. We have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There's a three-point sermon right there in one verse. This also alters our relationship now with the law and the Spirit. So relationship four in Romans chapter 7. Our relationship to the law is utterly transformed because of our new relationship to faith. This is how Paul says it in Romans 7, 4. You have died to the law. How? Through the body of Christ. Why? So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. 
Every human being on planet Earth belongs to someone. Every human being. You either belong to sin or you belong to Christ. You see how he says it? You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you belong to another. Apart from Christ, you, I did this last week, you stand in the sphere of sin and death and law. This is the sphere. You cannot go anywhere outside of this sphere. When by faith you accept the finished work of Jesus Christ, you are literally transferred from this state, from this sphere, into another sphere. It is the sphere of Christ. It is the sphere of the Spirit and grace and freedom. You're now dead to that, though this wants to get back in and is going to make mucho effort to get back in. That's the fight that you and I possess. They're no longer in within the fort, but they're going to try to maraud and try to beat the gates back to get back in. It's all they know. It's all it knows. But it has no more power over us because it's dead. You can say no to sin because you're in the sphere of the spirit of life. Watch this now. I'm going to prove it to you. So by faith, we've died to the law. Fifth, in Romans 8, our relationship to the Spirit now replaces our relationship to the law. In Romans 8, 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation. In a room of this size, I don't know how many people are watching online right now, there probably will be significantly more people than less who know what personal condemnation feels like. I always pause. I never hurry past Romans 8.1. Never. If you're in Christ, you've died to the law, you are no longer condemned. Family of origin that has condemned you, and still lingers profoundly in your soul, has no power over you because you are now a child of God. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Law of sin and death in Christ, power of the Spirit, you're transformed out of and from the law of sin and death to now the law of the spirit of life and grace and freedom. Can you see that? Say amen if you can see that. I want you to see that because too much ground is lost for the believer who is in this sphere wanting to get a foot back in that world or allowing this world to penetrate where we currently are. I'm going to go to my grave preaching and waving and hollering, making sure I can do the best by the power of the Spirit to make sure that's clear for you. This is where you are in Christ because he has propitiated the wrath of God. God is no longer seeking to penalize you. There's nothing else to be paid. You hear this from this pulpit all the time. If your works added something to your salvation, then basically what we say is that Christ's work was insufficient. Anybody in the room want to say that? Anybody watching me out there want to say that? I believe that Jesus' work on the cross was insufficient, and so I must add to it so that I can truly be saved. Anybody? Not a hand in the room. Now, what, if I, what happens if I spin the question this way? 
How many of you have ever lived that way? I'm going to lead the charge. This week, bad day, further away from God. Good day, God's more happy with me today. By faith, we've been set free in Christ Jesus by the spirit of life, thus making us, watch this pivot now, the true Israel of God. Sixth, Romans 9 to 11, our relationship to Israel has changed. Gentiles, this is Romans 9.30, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel national Israel, ethnic Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? This is the point I just made. Why? This is the text I'm reading for you, Romans 9.32 now, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it was based on works. And so our relationship to Israel now makes us the true Israel of God. This is what I argued in Romans 9, 10, and 11. That the Israel of God are those who are Jews and Gentiles who have come in repentance and faith, accepting the work of Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, so that these are the true people of God. Does God have a plan for national Israel? He does. He's working it now. And the Jews continue to come in, forming the true people of God. It's literally what Paul calls in Galatians chapter 6, the Israel of God. And so our relationship down to that level has changed. And here's the seventh one. The seventh relationship is our relationship to one another. And you've heard me wear this out. This is where we have come so far, Romans 12 and 13. I appeal to you. Here's the great pivot in the book, Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In other words, everything that Paul has said, Romans 1 to 11, all under the umbrella of the mercies of God, the gospel, making clear your relationship to sin, making clear your relationship to faith, making clear your relationship to the law and to the spirit and to Israel. Now, under those mercies, he says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices unto the Lord. Do not be conformed. Stop being conformed to this world and instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you have drunk from the wells of the mercies of God, you will be, in one sense, taken out of this world and moved into the sphere of the kingdom of God. Why? So that you can then turn around and go back into that world not being possessed by it. You are no longer conforming to the pattern of this world, ideally. Anybody want to put their hand in the air right now and tell me you've lived a week not conforming to the pattern of this age? Our relationship to one another is the seventh relationship of which I speak here. Our relationship to one another, we've seen that in Romans 12, and then the changes to our relationship to our enemies, We are to bless those who persecute us. That was a bumpy patch right there because it makes everybody's backbone stiffen and it makes the hair on the back of our head stand up. I have to love my enemies. I have to bless those who persecute me. You know I live on Staten Island, right? That's not in my Staten Island version. 
The mercies of God transform our relationship with one another, with our enemies, with the governing authorities. We're to submit to them. We talked about that at length in chapter 13. Paul says, in all things, let love be genuine. The only way that true selfless love can be genuine is if the relationships of which I've just spoke are in place. My love is disingenuous if I still have a love relationship with sin. My love is disingenuous if I have not seen the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. My love is disingenuous if I haven't come by faith and died to the law and been indwelt by the Spirit of God. I cannot love the way the Bible commands me to love if the Spirit of the living God, who is love, is not at work in my heart and mind. This kind of love simply cannot be manufactured. It is not always reciprocated. It's very difficult to live with unreciprocated love. Give, 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 nothing in return. The reason why that doesn't cause us to go off the rails is because the one that gives to us is eternal, endless supply of love. The number of times I've been in my room, on my face, literally or figuratively before the Lord and said, I have nothing left now. You need to supply. I'm told by the saints of old that that is a glorious place to be. It doesn't always feel that way, but it is a place for us to be. Knowing that your strength has run out and that it's only by his strength that you can make it another day is a good place to be in your understandings of the Lord. He closes this, as we saw last week, in the simple phrase, Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, when you go into the closet, it's Jesus Christ his life, his righteousness that you're putting on, that you're gearing up, that you're going into battle with. Not by my strength, but by his. That's the whirlwind tour, Paul, of where we've been. That's the review of Romans 13. Seven links that hold together and show, in my opinion, quite beautifully, as I sat back and looked at this and I thought, I've got to be sure to mention to them to have those links laid out because it does follow. You can see what Paul's doing right through and how it all connects together. And now it brings us to this point of preview. And I make one simple point with you here. In the preparation for Romans 14 and 15, which is a unit, the largest unit, that hangs together in the book, a number of commentators believe, arguably, that this is the reason why Paul wrote Romans. That you've got to really read Romans backwards. You read Romans 16 and you see his mission. And then you come to 14 and 15 and you see division in the church. And Paul says, hey, look, we can't get the mission done if there's division in the church. And I need you, Rome, because I'm on my way to Spain. And I need you not only to accept the gospel, but I need you to be propagators of the gospel and to feed me and fuel me so that I can keep going to the outermost regions of all of the earth. The more I looked at this in the years that I've been doing this with you, the more I'm leaning to believe that this really is why Paul wrote Romans. And I come out of a Reformed background that wants to see Romans as justification by faith. Amen. 
I see that. But the question you have to be, that has to be answered is, why did he go there in the first place? He goes there in the first place because there's division in the church. It's all over the place in the first century. Galatians. Galatians and Romans. Kissing cousins. It's a preview of what is to come as we set ourselves up for the table as well. In Romans, and, Romans 14 and 15, our relationship to one another gets expanded. He, he drills way down here. It's not just these general statements about let love be genuine in the body of Christ. It's not just these general statements about loving our persecutors. It's not general statements about being obedient to governing authorities. Paul's going to pull full stop right here, and he's going to drill down. And he comes precariously close to naming names because there's an issue between what he labels the strong and the weak. He's going to side with the strong, not because they're strong, but because they're more mature. But, as you can expect, the more mature has a greater impetus. We who are more mature ought to be patient and long-suffering with those who are less mature. And so you've got this dynamic, this law dynamic going on in Rome where there are some who are still beholden, at least to a certain degree, to the rules of Judaism. I can't eat that food, says the weak. The strong says, oh, but you're free in Christ. Of course you can eat that food. You're no longer bound by the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Eat, enjoy, glorify God. Weak, weak brother or sister comes back and says, but I can't. My conscience will not let me. The more mature says, I love you, brother and sister. I'm going to stay with you. I'm not going to eat if you're going to find it offensive. So the strong, one of the ways you know your strength is that you know the power you possess, but you don't use it. You don't run over somebody who's weak. You don't run over somebody who has a different opinion of yours. You're patient and long-suffering with them, asking the Lord to bring them along, to bring them more maturely. And I'm here to tell you, at the risk of, again, ruffling some feathers, Romans 14 and 15 could not be better timed here with regard to the whole conversation about masks. Churches are dividing because of masks. If there was ever an example of the weak and the strong in the Bible, here it is, and it's right in front of our (laughs) face. The mature, the strong, says... I don't have to wear a mask. I'm free not to. But what the strong then does is says, but you know what? I'm going to wear it because you might get sick if I don't. I have to stop here because I know that I'm meddling. And I ask the question again. Do your rights trump the well-being of a brother or sister? If it does, go to the Lord in repentance. Be inconvenienced for the weaker brother. It's exactly what Paul's going to say in Romans 14. A chapter and a half, a chapter and a half of talking to weak and strong, because he's going to come alongside the weak, and he's going to say to them, hey, listen, The strong are correct. You can eat that food. You don't have to observe that day. 
So we need to grow you. We need to come alongside of you. We need to instruct you. We need to ask for the Spirit to continue to mature you so that your conscience becomes unbound by legalism. That's why I say all the time, your conscience is often a good guide, but it's not infallible. Consciences need to be trained in the ways of the Lord. And so some of you sitting, and I've had this conversation with a number of you, you know, you, it was ingrained in you when you were, you were a child. This is the, the old generation. You know, Christians didn't smoke, drink, smoke, and chew or go with women who do. And that still sticks in the craw of some who are in their late 60s and 70s and 80s. I know many people like this. I can't go to a movie theater right now because the religion with which I grew up with said Christians don't go to movies. I know adults to this very day who have a hard time going to the theater. But they're free. So long as they're not going to see something immoral, they're free. You're free to eat. You're free to observe certain days or not. The onus is on the, on the strong. And you cannot use your maturity, your power to run over somebody who's not yet where you are. The call for the strong is for patience and prayer for those who don't yet see your position, which, by the way, might not be right. Our relationship to one another, specifically the weak and the strong. Paul, and this is stunning. I, I, I try not to be hyperbolic, overly dramatic when the situation does not call for it. But I, I need you to hear this one line that came to me early this morning as I finished the final edit this morning. The, the importance of healthy relationships within the body of Christ cannot be overstated when it comes to the mission of God. Let me say that again. The importance of healthy relationships within the body of Christ cannot be overstated when it comes to the mission of God. Paul's going to go on in all of Romans 14, half of Romans 15, and then quite significantly is going to pivot to his full-blown mission statement, which is going to take him to the end of the book. Carefully, carefully planned, carefully penned, carefully organized. The most important issue for Paul before he gets to, now I'm coming to you and this is what I want you to do in the back half of Romans 15 and all of Romans 16, is clean up your relationships. Paul knows that if they're squabbling over food, if they're squabbling over, over, over days, if they're squabbling over masks, he can't come into their presence and say, I need you to help me finish the mission. What's going to happen in that meeting when that missionary walks in and says, we need to finish the mission? Well, we can't do this because so-and-so isn't wearing their mask. And all of a sudden, you know what breaks loose in the room? And Paul says, wait, wait a minute, what? We're, we're arguing over what? That's preventing us from the mission that God has called us to? This is why we have Romans 14 and 15. This is why Paul says in Romans 14, 
beginning in verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of, in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So what Paul's saying is, you can glorify God in abstaining or partaking. For none of us lives to himself. That is huge, brothers and sisters. Let me say that carefully because Paul, this is the thread that's going to run through these two chapters. Paul says, at the end of the day, you ought not to be pressing your rights. Because you don't live for yourself. None of us lives to himself. So let me ask you gently, but pointedly, are you selfish? Have you spent more energy this past week arguing for your rights than you have expending energy loving your neighbor? That's not an easy question. None of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. 14, 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord, we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So the prayer every morning is, Lord, I'm yours. What would you have for me today? Lord, I am not my own. What would you have for me today? Lord, my priorities this morning are loving you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving my neighbor. Lord, what would you have for me today? For to this end, 14.9, for to this end, in other words, all of this, listen to what he says, to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Did you get that in 14.9? We'll, we'll go back over it, God willing. To this end, Christ died and lived again. In other words, the unity of the body of Christ is one of the reasons why Jesus died. To this end, he died and rose again. To the end that we would be on the same page. It's a staggering thought. One verse. To this end, Jesus died. Did he die to take away your sin? Did he, die to, did he die to free you from the law? Did he die so that he could send you the Spirit? Absolutely. But he also died that we would be unified. He also died that we would be unified. Division, three words, I'm done. Division hinders mission. Three words. Division hinders mission. And so to the table, we come with these closing words out of Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. See, there's always three. There's you, there's your neighbor, and there's Jesus. In accord with Christ Jesus, that together, 15, 6, that together we may, with one voice, I pray this, I pray this, let New York Baptist Church, oh God, be one voice, 
May New York Baptist Church, O oh God, be one voice. To what end? Glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 15.7, to the table we go. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We rejected Christ. We were welcomed by him. We've been welcomed by Christ. That welcome ought to run right through us to welcome those, even those who have a different opinion from us. He keeps driving back to Jesus because if your eyes are on Jesus, they have a hard time finding differences. Differences. 